Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn from a rain-sodden Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller from an equally rain-sodden south-east London. I'm very, very excited by our guest today, Richard. Perhaps you could explain who she is. Well, very happy to. In the last 20 or 30 years, the rise of women's cricket has been the biggest story in world cricket, in dozens of countries as well as our own. For years, women's cricket worldwide got fewer pages in wisdom than cricket in British boys' schools. But now, at least until COVID, it's become the fastest-growing component of world cricket. And that's why, as you say, it's such a special thrill to welcome today's guest, because her own journey sort of matches and mirrors the journey of women's cricket itself. She began her career playing with men and boys, but then in her teens she was playing test cricket for England women and later became captain. Later still, she's become a top administrator. Since 2012, she's been the ICC's chair of women's cricket, a member of the English Cricket Board and its managing director of women's cricket. And in October next year, she will become the first woman to be president of the MCC, which was a male bastion for over 150 years. Claire Connor, thank you so much for joining us. Lovely to be with you. Thank you. Claire, it is quite something to be president of the MCC. Your predecessors include, I've had a look at the website, about 90 belted earls and dukes. Royalty in the shape of Prince Philip twice, uh, as well as incredible number of really famous epoch-making cricketers. How does it feel? Yeah, it, it makes me quite emotional, actually. And it's such an enormous honour. Nobody ever thinks that that's something that will kind of be bestowed upon them. I'm still in a bit of shock, if I'm honest, I think, even though I've you know, I've had some really lovely conversations like this with people who are kind of interested in talking to me about it. And, you know, it was a phone call pre the pandemic. I received a phone call from Kumar Sangakkara, who was in Pakistan, actually, at the time with with the MCC um, and Guy Lavender, the MCC chief exec. They were Kumar was captaining uh, a, an MCC 11 in he Pakistan. Was indeed a very important tour. Yeah, an important trip. And they phoned me, the, both of them actually, Guy, who I know well, who's the chief exec at the MCC, who used to be chief executive at Somerset County Cricket Club. And uh, Kumar, who I don't know that well, I know a little bit. And on that phone call, he asked me whether I would succeed him as president. And that was, at that stage, we hadn't been struck. I think well, things were sort of bubbling away. Um, COVID hadn't happened really here. And the position was due to start in October this year and I can remember that phone call so vividly and where I was and um, you know it's not something that you need to think about very for, for for very long before you before you kind of respond positively I don't think what the one thing I did have to do was check I suppose what the expectations of that role are and how they could fit with a full-time job as managing director of women's cricket and at the ECB as, as you mentioned there and I think um Again, having looked myself at my at the at former presidents, not many of them in 230 years, not many have had busy full-time jobs at the same time 
as fulfilling those those responsibilities or, or having those opportunities as MCC president. So I had to kind of check in with work. I talked to uh, my, my boss, Tom Harrison, and our chair, Colin Graves, and they gave me their kind of unadulterated backing and congratulations. And they said, you know, whatever you need from us to make it work, we'll give you. So that was lovely. I then, uh, a few weeks later, met with Guy Lavender and went through the sort of a five or six page document at, at Lords to understand the role a little more and what the sort of mandatory obligations and responsibilities of the role are. And then I think, you know, what interests me more are the other things, you know, the other bits that if I've got time and, and energy and a desire I can get get involved in. And so and then and then the pandemic happened. Um, and so actually then it went out of my head quite quickly until I got a call from Guy a couple of months later to say, look, because of this lost summer, we're going to probably extend Kumar's presidency into 2021. Um, I'm absolutely thrilled. I, I can't believe it. And at least I've got time to really prepare for it, I think, and understand mm, yeah. what I might be able to get kind of really involved in as, as MCC president and what's, what's within scope and what, what the opportunities might be to, to, to try to make the biggest difference. What's your... Uh main duties do you, as you see them when you take over? I think the main duties are to chair certain meetings and to give certain after dinner talks at members dinners or other dinners. I think the other main the main element of the role is during the summer where you get the lovely opportunity to host the president's box at Lords for two test matches and I think a couple of one day internationals as well. So there you get the chance to invite you know Basically, this amazing opportunity to invite people from all sorts of sectors and from it within in cricket and obviously guests from outside of cricket as well into the president's box and to give them a lovely experience of the MCC and of Lords and to, you know, that I think to network and mix with some very interesting people. And, and that'll be a, a lovely thing to do will be to kind of write those guest lists and see who we can entice in. But I think there's there are wider opportunities in the role. You know, there's the fact that I am the first, you know, I haven't, I haven't mentioned that, that, that it's, I'm the first woman to be asked to, to be the MCC president. And so I think that comes with the opportunity to really kind of drive the, the agenda around the club becoming more inclusive, more modern. And so I'm looking forward to that as well. Claire, I can't resist mentioning one of your predecessors uh, was Stanley Baldwin, former Prime Minister. And Baldwin actually met his wife, Lucy fell in love with her when he watched her playing cricket. She was a notable woman, early women's cricketer as, as Lucy Ridsdale and then as Lucy Baldwin. And she used to actually have meetings of women's She was still an advocate for women's cricket. And she used to have meetings of uh, women cricketers at number 10, which is quite a you know, <laughs> remarkable piece of advocacy. Um, the new the MCC is about to change its committee structure. Is that going to give you supreme power? If it doesn't, we'll all, you know, the, Why not? Sure the members will <laughs> vote it down. <laughs> yeah, look, I think, I think it's quite a, a divisive conversation, actually. And I think, you know, there'll be some MCC members who don't want the sort of current governance structure and constitution to change. But a lot of people, you know, and I would be one of the latter group who, who do think it's time for change. I think, that, you know, having a more kind of more agile processes and a more diverse board or sort of main committee and process to elect members to that committee. I think it's time for that. And, you know, if, if the MCC is to move into a more 
modern world from a governance and leadership perspective and then then I think it is needed but yeah I think there'll be it'll be an interesting couple of months as that kind of process takes place. Claire, let's turn the clock right back to your early career because I think it shows this sort of journey you've made and women's cricket in general. You began playing in Brighton, I think not aware of women's cricket at all. You played in Brighton at sort of school and club level with boys and men. Did you have any role model at all in, in women's cricket? No, I didn't, unfortunately. You're, you're completely right, Richard. I didn't, um, I didn't really have any awareness of the women's game until I was in my mid-teens, probably. So all of my kind of really formative experiences were with, with boys and men. Growing up in our cricket club, really, which, you know, for any boy or girl who's lucky enough to have a wonderful cricket club or any sports club, really, where they can sort of grow up and play and have fun and fall in love with a sport and that whole club environment. I played at Preston Nomads Cricket Club. I don't know if you know it. It's nestled in the South Downs. I've actually played against it earlier, earlier in my life, yeah. Yeah, it's it's completely mm, idyllic. You know, it's um, we always lived in, in Hove uh, next to Brighton and, and this was sort of a 15, 20 minute drive into the countryside, uh, away from the sea and into the downs. And, and that's where I spent, you know, I, I really did grow up there from a, a, a little girl, you know, as soon as I was sort of big and strong enough to drag a cricket bat around as a toddler. There I was sort of following my dad around. I didn't have siblings until I was 11. Uh, so I was an only child for, for, for those early, early years. And I just loved it. You know, I, I really, I am asked the question all the time, you know, when did you fall in love with cricket? And I can't remember. So that tells me that it was almost a, a nature rather than the nurture uh, love affair, really. And yeah, I played, played boys cricket from the age of seven or eight, uh, as you mentioned, and captained the boys under 10s team at school. And I was the only girl. And in the club, in the cricket club and at school and on the school circuit and the club circuit. But what's strange is that I didn't feel odd. I didn't feel like, like any kind of outsider. I, and I, I can only put that down now when I think about it to, to the kind of unconditional support and backing of, of my parents and of cricket club members and the coaches that I had and people who organised our teams and teachers. I, I was very, very lucky. And obviously those experiences playing in boys' teams, you know, gave me so much, especially, I think, around sort of being resilient and, um, yeah, and, and believing in myself. You were quite a pioneer, weren't you, there? Because now, you know, for instance, my my local uh, village team, Horningsham, which I play for sometimes and against sometimes, there's a wonderful lady cricketer playing there. And then when we tour Ireland, we find lady cricketers playing for the local. So it's not quite unusual in local clubs. Yeah, it's, I think well, what's become even more important is that loads and loads of cricket clubs now, nearly 950 up and down the country, have got women's and girls' teams playing, you know, as all, in all female teams. And that's, you know, that, that was very, very unusual when I was growing up. I mean, it happened, but I didn't, it, it, it existed. I didn't know about it. And I, I suppose I, I succeeded through, through cricket in spite of, you know, there wasn't really a system, if you like, for girls to play. I just was, you know, in the right place at the right time with the right people around me. And I think it's so important that now for girls to have all girls teams or women to play in all, women, all women's teams, because, you know, that's, that's absolutely right. It's got to be a standalone opportunity and a standalone sport. What brought you out of male cricket into female cricket? How did that happen? Because you were in the Sussex women's team, weren't you, at 16? Right. Yeah. yeah, I was. And, and I played, I started to play for Sussex women whilst I was still playing 
boys cricket and, and men's cricket but what I, I became aware and I can't remember how I became aware of it that there was a Sussex trial taking place Sussex women's trial down at Rodine school which was just down from where I played with all the with the boys at Brighton College and um, my dad took me to that trial I think I would have been 15 or 6 I think maybe 15 14 or 15 something like that and um, I hadn't seen any other women or girls even playing cricket by then. But then I went down to this Sussex trial and I was given my chance to have a trial, have a, net, have a net, have a bat. And I was batting away against these other female bowlers and a, a grey haired small lady with a clipboard and a smart white tracksuit kind of sort of did a circuit of the net and watched me from, from all angles. And she stood behind the net and after I played one shot, she sort of moved towards the net and she, she introduced herself and she, she, her name was Ruth Prido. And she, became, she was the England women's coach uh, when they won the World Cup in 1993. And I hadn't heard of her. I didn't know her, her background. And she said to me, if you carry on playing like that young lady, you'll play for England. And wow, that was such a wow. moment. Yeah, it's so a really vivid memory. And uh, I didn't even really know much about it. I didn't know really of an England women's cricket team. I thought, because of my own experiences and the fact that I'd been successful, that I would go on and just keep playing men's cricket. I, you know, I had no kind of sense of barriers, really, around sort of when that would end from a gen kind of gender perspective and or, or an ability perspective because I'd, I'd done well playing in boys teams so that was an amazing moment and I and it happened and I grew to have a, a very very close relationship with Ruth Prideau. Was she by any chance related of course to the England England and uh, Northamptonshire Roger. opener of yeah? She was yeah yeah they were <laughs> husband and wife. Oh uh, right! Oh, that, that's yeah amazing. absolutely. I was going to say Claire you're, you're, that, that story is very reminiscent of the way a lot of Pakistan cricketers get discovered, you know, yeah. female and female and male, just being, mm. you know, in the right place, at the right time, being spotted. Sometimes, as you say, for for one shot, yeah. And that's amazing, isn't it? When you, if you're lucky enough to be one of those people, but that there is a degree of, you know, that's very, that's arbitrary. And so, you know, what 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 I'm so thrilled about now is that we're doing everything we can to kind of remove that arbitrary. Uh, spotting or if you, you know we call it in uh, we call it talent ID you know it should be there shouldn't be that sort of postcode lottery or people you know or you stumble on and uh, you know there's we've got to try and scoop up that talent in a kind of much more kind of systemic way so that everybody gets the chance or not everybody that's a pipe dream I suppose but as many girls and boys as possible from all sorts of backgrounds that aren't just lucky enough to go to Brighton College like I did and have the amazing kind of support that I did. We need to be far more all-encompassing than that. I have to say, all credit to Brighton College. Was Anthony Selden, my friend Anthony Selden, the headmaster then? I imagine. He was the headmaster when I went back to teach there. So yeah. at the time, the head, the head was John Leach. And, but the, the man who played the, probably the biggest part in my development, the coach, was John Spencer, the former Sussex fast bowler. He was, um, he ran the cricket at Brighton College for, oh gosh, probably 15 or 20 years. Mm. And it was him when I was in my mid-teens, probably playing or playing in the under-15s boys team. And he taught, he, we talked about my chances of playing in the first 11. And if I, and that I would be the first girl to play in a, 
you know, essentially a boys private public school first 11 if I if I did that. And he devoted so many hours to me um, for the next couple of years, early morning net sessions, evening net sessions, drilling me, you know, not in a kind of cracky I wanted it you know I was I would I would I would take every minute I could get of that it wasn't uh, any when it wasn't forced upon me and he really and he said to me when I got to sort of what we called the upper fifth so when I was probably 16 with two years to go left in the school sixth form still to go he just said to me you know there will be no kind of barrier from our side if you're good enough to play you will play in the first 11 Uh, and I did I broke through when I was just turning 17 and played for two years two years in the first 11 and, uh, you know, played against the MCC, played against an MCC men's side each summer and all the other big sort of first 11s in the southeast, and opened the batting um, in my final year at school and then went to Zimbabwe with um, Brighton College. Golly, oh, fun. Yeah. Which was, was you know, crikey, if, if, if a girl in a boys' first 11 was unusual in England, then for a girl to be in Zimbabwe playing in an all-boys team was, I mean... Yeah, it, that was that was quite a quite a thing I think over there. Sadly, I didn't complete much of the tour as a player. I, I mean, I completed the tour, but I got injured in the second game. I broke my broke my hand um, playing on a dodgy wet wicket, and so was was sitting on the sidelines for much of the tour and missed playing against Henry Alonga. So we our Brighton College first eleven played Plumtree first eleven. Mm. And a young or seventeen year old Henry was was in that first eleven for Plumtree and took seven for twenty against us. Just as well. I mean it would have been nice to play against him. I subsequently worked with him for Channel Four for a, a brief spell doing some commentating. And so we reminisced on on that, uh, obviously, he remembers me because I was this, you know, girl coming over from England to play against them. Uh, but yeah, I missed out, missed out on that opportunity to be one of his scalps. Now, tell me, after that experience, you played for England age 18 in 1995 and in a very distinguished international career over the next 10 years, you represented your country in 16 test matches. 93 one-day internationals, 1,600 international runs and more than 100 wickets, including a hat-trick against India in 1999. When you played for England, were you essentially playing as amateurs, you and your colleagues, or were you professionals? What was it like? We were completely amateur uh, amateurs in that we weren't paid. I think we were, you know, towards the end of my career, certainly we were pretty professional in our approach and our training and, you know, our, the way we went about our, the way we went about being England cricketers, we were very professional in that sense. But yes, we were unpaid. So my, my career as a player, uh, I, I, I start, when I started, I was under the auspices of the Women's Cricket Association, which um, had been the organisation running the women's game in this country, you know, a volunteer-led amazing band of women, virtually all women, I think, um, running cricket in this country for women. And then then the when the ECB, in 1998, the ECB, so I'd been playing for England by then for three years, and the ECB then took over the, the running of the women's game in this country. And that sort of merger, if you like, or uh, that, that took place sort of between 1997 and 1998. And then, you know, obviously lots of things changed. And... You know, for example, we then became sponsored by Vodafone overnight as part of the the England men's and women's joint sponsorship. Um, so things like that. And I think the kind of standards of 
touring and how we were looked after. I think those kinds of things improved. There were teething problems, I'm sure, a couple of which I know about, but lots, there would be loads behind the scenes that I didn't know, I didn't know about because essentially the, you know, that all of those people with that expertise in running the women's game in this country, you know, whether that would be club level or county, women's county cricket and the England end of the game, you know, a lot of that expertise sort of obviously fell away. And, and then we were essentially run by, you know, the, the organisation that ran men's cricket. So that brought, that brought good and bad, I think. And obviously, you know, very quickly, we got sort of better looked after, I suppose, over time. And then probably in about 2000, um, so about halfway through my England career, we did receive some funding. So we weren't paid to play or anything, but we received... Um, some funding from Sport England or UK Sports, I can't remember which at the time, but which was, you know, designed to help mostly Olympic sports, actually, from a funding perspective to give them some support. It was the, called the Elite Player, the, the World Class Elite Funding Programme or something like that. And, and that was the, so the most I ever received as an England player was about £650 a month. And that essentially helped, you know, it did help hugely. Um, but I, I had, we all had full time jobs. So I was a teacher. Um, I was an English teacher at, back at Brighton College, which, gave, you know, the fact that I had grown up there and played my cricket there gave me a very kind of a deep relationship with that or them as a school. And I was very, very well supported. So I was given off the t all the time that I needed to, to go on tour and to train and, and, and was very lucky. Lots of my mm. teammates didn't have that support from employers and were constantly moving jobs and trying to make ends meet and had a much tougher time of it. But I was I was really really lucky. We at least paid your expenses, all of you, you and your colleagues, as um, you know, as, as England women test cricketers. Or did you have to fund that out of your own pocket? It sounds very no, nice to your regime. Fund everything, yeah. absolutely every penny until that sport, that um, that funding came in that I mentioned in around two thousand. So for the first five years, then as an England cricketer, so I bought my first. I had to pay for my first England blazer. I had to pay towards my first, my first full tour was to India um, in November, December 1995. And I was in my first year at university, Manchester University, reading English. I was 19 years old and um, I had to miss mo quite a lot of that first term, actually, to go to India at university, first term of university to go to India. And we had to pay, I think we had to contribute £500 each towards that England tour. So you're talking from then, you know, 1995 to now, you know, what is that? That's 25 years, isn't it? Is it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I read English, not maths. Um, <laughs> 25 years of enormous change um, when you think now that, or in 2014, so 19 years after my debut, full, full professional contracts came in for England women. So a huge amount of change. But yeah, my, certainly my experiences as an England cricketer were very, you know, they, 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 I wasn't paid. And yes, that funding grant helped hugely from, from having zero. But we did, we had to pay our expenses. I had to get myself from Manchester University across to, often to Headingley um, for training at weekends. That was my sort of one of my nearest centres for, for England women's training. But they were amazing experiences, um, you know, combining my two biggest loves, really, which were English and, and cricket. And I was able to do both at the same time travel the world, wear an England badge, pull on an England shirt, and then, you know, and then go back and teach Hamlet when I'd finished. We, um, we had a wonderful interview with Nathan Lehman, the England team strategist, 
a, a long time, a few months ago now. And of course, he's written a terrific novel about Test cricket. When's your novel coming out? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't thought of one. Um, so well, it's I've got loads of plots you can have. <laughs> So, Claire, you then became England cricket captain, where you picked England cricket off the floor after it had been humiliatingly defeated in Down Under uh, and won a, the Ashes series of 2005. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was, um, it was an, a remarkable summer, obviously, for English cricket, men and women. And I think for the whole nation, actually, the following of that, mm. that summer. Um, you know, we were fortunate enough to be with England men in Trafalgar Square, I don't know if you remember that, but it was a, an amazing occasion. People flooding into the streets in London, you know, hanging off lampposts, climbing onto sort of office balconies and those open top bus rides through London as we, as we, as we celebrated the Ashes. Um, for us, for England women, it was our first Ashes success in 42 years. And actually it was, I played for England by then for 10 years. I'd been captain for six. And it was the first summer we'd, or the first time home or away we'd ever beaten Australia. So actually it was a it was such a monumental time for us as a team because thereafter it was as if then this sort of curse had been lifted because it can be psycho psychologically damaging to keep being absolutely thrashed by Australia. It's you know lots of cricketers can 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 talk about that and sadly I was one of them. I had a decade of it. And um so to beat them and to beat them during that summer with England men having such an amazing time as well and everyone getting behind us, it was, it was absolutely brilliant. Um, they were, they're amazing memories of being, you know, on that, on that open top bus with my teammates and feeling part of something very, very special. And as you say, Peter, if I go back to the day where I, or essentially to the tour where I was made captain six years prior to that, we were on the back of an absolute hammering from Australia in 2000 and I was only 23 and we were rock bottom so those six years were they took their toll you know they were I was absolutely sort of mentally and physically exhausted by the end of that Ashes series in 2005 but they were incredible times um, I learned so much about leadership about myself and yeah you know I'm sort of nearly welling up thinking about them they were they were remarkable years and um yeah, I'll, I'll always have them. Claire, did you get invited to drinks by Tony Blair in that 2005? <laughs> <laughs> he did, he did that already. We went from, from, uh, from Mansion House through the streets to, the, uh, to Trafalgar Square and then to a drinks function at, um, at the, in the Garden of Number 10. And then we went back to Lords, and it was absolutely silent after all of that hubbub. And we went back to Lords, and they set up a photograph on the outfield to capture the kind of both both teams with the with the ashes. And when then we left the ashes to go into the museum, and uh, and, and wrapped up wrapped up the, the day there. We had some drinks in the long room, and and then headed for home. Quite a day, quite an achievement. And then the following year, you were injured, and that was the end of end of your career. But you've had this amazing second career, Claire which I want you to talk about. I mean, you became chairman of the ICC Women's Committee, and this has been a period of... I just want to give you one... Before asking you a question, I mean, I remember in Pakistan, I met a lady at the PCB, and she was going off to coach the Iranian women's cricket team. 
what a thing. Suddenly you've got an Arabian. Tell us how all this happened and what the great achievements were of this period. Uh, yeah, I mean, so my role as chair of the ICC Women's Committee is a, you know, that's not my job. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's an extra on top of my ECB role. Um, but uh, it's been unbelievably rewarding, um, an unbelievably rewarding period, actually, the last eight years and, and the work we've been able to do for the women's game within the ICC, who only took over kind of the international women's game in 2005. So that's been a sort of short relationship, but a really kind of burgeoning one in terms of how the women's game has developed. And as you, as you say, Peter, we've got teams now popping up all over the world playing men's and women's and we're obviously focusing on women's here but playing women's mostly t20 cricket so that you know they're not playing any really longer version of the game than that and that's absolutely fine because it's you know for countries where there is no cricket heritage or or background it, it is the t20 format i think that is going to grow the game so an example would be thailand women who have thailand over, women thailand Gosh. women who broke into the T20 women's rankings a couple of years ago. They've got a brilliant setup. They've developed, load, developed loads of talented female players. And they qualified this year for the T20 Women's World Cup in Australia in February, March, and did themselves proud. They were, they captured the, the imagination of so many people, you know, the way they played their cricket. Um, you know, they didn't qualify for, you know, they start, they were in the tournament, but they didn't get into the semis um, or the final, but they were there. And so we're seeing this engagement with women's cricket in all sort of corners of the globe, really. And it's, it's fascinating, you know, the, the number of T20 women's games that have been played over the last three years are in their hundreds, you know, amongst European nations, African nations, Asian nations. And it's wonderful uh, because it's, it shows that there is this appetite for the game and that more women and girls are going to get the chance to play the game around the world. And that makes me unbelievably happy if I think about you know, the fact that it's you know, cricket, women's cricket has been quite a narrow opportunity for, for, for women and girls around the world. Um, you know, Bangladesh women, I mean, the Asian sides, they've got remarkable stories to tell. Pakistan, you know, you mentioned Pakistan there, you know, only even starting to play international women's cricket in 1996. And then, you know, being in their first World Cup in 1997 in India, um, a Pakistan women's team in India at that time was so courageous for those women. It was a terrible climate for women generally in Pakistan when they set up that team and um, the wonderful Khan sisters and we've interviewed. Sadly, one, one, of, them, uh, one of them died recently, but um, we've inter we interviewed both of them and it was a you know, astonishing act of you know, physical and moral courage to set up a women's cricket team at all. It really, it really was. And they were, you know, the sister, Khan sisters were pioneering with what they what they've set up in Pakistan, and you know now Pakistan women are frequently you know finishing in the top six or seven in the world, top eight in the world in all the global rankings and global tournaments in the space of just over twenty years. So there are some really fast moving developments, and you know the, you talk about the end game. Perhaps if you know lots of people see it as an end game is or another vehicle for amazing kind of growth and sort of support for cricket around the world would be inclusion in the Olympics. We're not quite there yet. You know, the calendar is so busy now for, for international men's and women's cricket, particularly men's cricket, with all of the domestic T20 leagues going on, you know, IPL going on at the moment that takes eight weeks. 
um, and sort of sort of really has a, a monopoly over over that time. Um, so you've got all of the you've got Test cricket, fifty over cricket, T Twenty cricket being played internationally. You've got the domestic leagues at T in the T Twenty format uh, being played. Big Bash, Women's Big Bash. We've got the hundred, the hundred ball competition coming online next summer for men and women. Um, and this opportunity on the horizon to get into the Olympics and how we, I think, how the ICC and its various committees, how we juggle the schedule um, and find... Got, first, first of all, you've got the... Sorry to interrupt. First of all, you have, which I'm fascinated by, women's cricket in the Commonwealth Games in two years' time. Yes. How, how will that, that... That's obviously a very interesting and important prototype, as it were, for the Olympics, isn't it? It is the the only difference being that um, to be in the Olympics it would we would it would be definitely for both genders whereas the Commonwealth Games have taken women's cricket only um, into the program for 2022 and I was part of the bid with ICC colleagues about 18 months ago um, we were up against some other additional sports for the Commonwealth Games program so beach volleyball and shooting and archery and we were we've we've been given a place in that program in 2022, which is a massive opportunity. You know, it's a, uh, people fall in love with new sports during multi, you know, Commonwealth Games and Olympic, Olympic Games times. And people go and watch sports and get tickets to be part of that experience, I think, for sports that maybe they haven't previously considered or been a fan of. So I think having women's cricket in the Birmingham Games on home soil, free to air television in 2022 is, one of the biggest opportunities our game's ever had. And we have to make the most of that. You know, we've got this amazingly diverse community in Birmingham. The, you know, billions of, of eyeballs watching around the world on television. And as you say, Peter, it is a bit of a, a dry run, if you like, to see how it could work in the Olympics. The Olympics would be even more challenging, though, in terms of the time frame where you've got to fit in men's and, men's and women's tournament with, not not necessarily in a cricket playing nation so in a cricket playing country so for example if it were in paris or la or tokyo or wherever you've got to we've got to work out how to fit the program in to an olympics which is quite condensed time pressured and it might be and it's a discussion that's being had at the moment it might be that t20 cricket is too long a format and then you start to get into the territory of okay well we don't want to go you know, there's, the, there's a couple of T10 leagues popping up around the world. There's one in the UAE around November time. But then you start to get into the debate about whether that's proper cricket. And, you know, that, that debate rages on. And what, what format do we want the world to watch if, it, if we're in the Olympics? So you're entertaining the idea of a 10 over a side, though, in, for, the, for the Olympics, are you? Well, it, it entertaining as in it's, be, it's been tabled and it's being discussed because you have to, if you've got eight international or ten international eight or ten international men's teams and eight or ten international women's teams, and you've got to play a viable competition with integrity over a period of ten days or so with limited pitches, I mean, what it will show for certain, what it will require is hybrid pitches, which we've played on quite a lot this summer, and they're they're fairly cheap to, to lay. They're about five thousand pounds to lay a hybrid pitch. And of course, they just last and last and last. And they don't, you don't have that problem, which a games, a multi-sport games and Olympics or a Commonwealth Games gives you of, of, of needing fresh pitches. 
so the hybrid pitch the hybrid pitch kind of evolution is is an important one so describe what you mean by a hybrid pitch exactly it's it's not a cricket pitch it's not a grass wicket then it's something else it's not a true grass wicket no it's made up of real real turf but a lot of artificial turf in there as well and they've been you know international cricket will will be played on them now we're playing england women played on some this summer the commonwealth games commonwealth for us to get into the commonwealth games and to be able to play enough games of T20 cricket or the volume of T20 cricket that's required, We've, we will be using hybrid pitches in the Commonwealth Games. Um, but they're on their standard fare now. They're on, they're on every first-class venue strip, first-class county strip around this country, and they're used a huge amount around the world. And if cricket is to grow at, to the, in, in the way that we need it to grow, um, and then we're going to need hybrid pitches. Mm could be a tremendous resource in developing countries, much, much, much easier than all grass ones, isn't it? Claire Wisdom this year had a, has a sort of touching story of women's cricket in Mali, and they, they lost their, some of their T20 matches by absolutely huge margins. I think six all out against Rwanda, and five of those were extras. But it's still absolutely wonderful that um, cricket's being played in, in Mali. And I wonder if you could say something about how the ICC is supporting the game women's game, well, in countries that might be thought very marginal to cricket and have no tradition and no infrastructure for it. Yeah, well, the ICC has a, a very good development programme, which, you know, obviously, like any development programme in any space, always needs more funding. But it does support, it is supporting pretty well the growth of cricket around the world in those countries, you know, in countries that are, you know, that don't have that history of cricket and uh, that are, that have you know, significant economic problems or social social problems. We know, you, you, you know, you, you, you both know the power of the sport to bring communities together, to unite people. I mean, the Afghanistan story is probably the greatest example of that. And cricket has the power, I think, to heal. And we're going to need that more than ever, you know, in these, uh, as we emerge, if we are emerging, I don't know if emerge is the right word, but as we manage and, and live with the pandemic for however long that takes, you know, the, the global economy and a lot of organisations are going to be terribly impacted. And so sport is so important. You know, cricket, I think, um, in countries that really need help and unification, you know, cricket can play its part. And I've seen it firsthand. Um, you know, sport has that amazing power to heal and to bring people together and unite people and communities and, and make lives better. And so I think now more than ever, um, that ICC development programme is, is, is much needed and its work is really important. Claire, one possible downside to the success and the growth of women's cricket in the last 30 years, and that's the problem of match fixing and corruption. Have you seen any signs? Has, have you and the ICC seen any signs of it anywhere? Yes, we have. Oh. Um, we have seen a significant increase in cases of or, or approaches or attempts at corruption. And it's a problem for the game. You know, we, I, I read a statistic the other day that a lot of people are put off, you know, potential fans are put off cricket because of, they believe that it, the integrity of the game is, is under threat through match fixing. And so it's a problem that the ICC are taking very, very seriously. They've expanded their anti-corruption unit. And, and the, the question there, Richard, yes, we have seen it infiltrate into the women's game. And the reason for that is that those fixers and corruptors 
will always try to find a way into any cricket that is being broadcast or streamed. And so with the emergence of women's cricket on television and live streaming, there is that route now for potentially more vulnerable and less, you know, we, there is an education programme for all international cricketers, male and female, but, you know, female cricketers are, are less, less experienced in this area. So it's certainly something that ICC are doubling down their efforts on because, you know, we have to be able to tell the world and show the world and prove to the world that our sport is free of that. Otherwise, it's, it's not a viable it's not a viable competition. It's not a viable contest that people will believe in. And yeah, it's um, it's certainly very much on the radar because because it is all all cricket that is televised or streamed is under threat. Just picking up one thing you said though, which is really what sort of audiences worldwide does women's cricket now get? Um, well, I can tell you some statistics. I can tell you that uh, the most recent weekend we've just played, we we played a. Uh, T20 against the West England women played the West Indies and it was simulcast on the BBC and Sky live first time we've been on the live on the BBC since 1993 so a really massive step and that TV audience peaked the combined TV audience peaked at two million in this country two million in this country Crikey, that yeah is, which yeah. makes the most watched the most watched game of cricket ever in this country, even surpassing the Women's World Cup final in 2017 at Lords, which had huge figures. That's in this country. Um, the, the Women's World Cup final globally had hundreds of millions of viewers and over a billion, over a billion digital engagements. So, you know, on social media and... Well, and you're talking there about the uh, Aussie-India final, are you? No, I was referring on that, in that case, to the 2016 yeah. Women's right. over World Cup final between England and India. In, in this country. Look, the, the involvement of India in any of these matches obviously makes a massive difference to the reach and the, the interest around the world. The, the, the game you're referring to there, Peter, at the MCG this year was the T20 final between Australia and India women. Um, 87,000 sellout crowd at the MCG. And, uh, and again, I mean, I haven't got the figures at my disposal. I think it was the, it was the second or third most watched game of men's or women's cricket ever in Australia. That's jaw-dropping, that women's game can have that kind of mass appeal, yeah. Yeah, it is. So it's... encouraging too, really encouraging. And of course, it, it opens up this, which we probably won't have time for now, but it opens up the, the really important conversation about how we, do we now, because in, in the, across the ICC and in most countries, the women's game is commercially bound up in the men's rights, but it's now generating probably enough interest and appeal and engagement to stand alone and, and generate its own commercial income and partnerships. And that's, in, in my opinion, that, is, that needs to be the most important conversation of the next few years is how we give, how do we create the commercial arrangements for the women's game that kind of unbundle it from men's cricket and give it its own, you know, just like women's tennis and women's golf, the journey that they've been on. How do you, how do you create that, that standalone commercial um, viability? Um, I'd like to come back to the ECB for a moment, Claire, and particularly the very ambitious action plan that launched last year for, for women's cricket and um, particularly the aspects on... Um, on participation and and people and its five pillars. 
you wanted to create a, you created a very ambitious 10-step pathway for um, girls and women to get involved in cricket. Tell us a bit more about that and how you're monitoring its progress. Yeah, thanks, Richard. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's in year one of uh, the action plan. We've just completed year one. And it, obviously, with the pandemic and everything that's brought, it wasn't, it wasn't quite the year we envisaged, although we have achieved a lot of it still. So, you know, the, the main, you know, without being too kind of national governing body about it, the main um, ambition of that strategy is for girls to see cricket as a sport for them and to try to make it their sport of choice. Because our overarching strategy for the game at the ECB is to inspire a generation to say cricket is a game for me. And, and therefore that's a very inclusive ambition. And from a female point of view, you know, if I go back to my, my experiences I talked about, I didn't see a future in cricket as a woman or a young woman playing, you know, for England women, because I simply, there wasn't the visibility of the women's game. I didn't know how to get involved in a women's club. I didn't know what the opportunities were. I didn't know how to go and access really good coaching. And what we've, we're trying to put in place is a, is a pathway for a young girl who can just as easily and normally pick up a bat or a ball as a little boy aged five or six. And we want to show that little girl in the same way that boys have been able to see it for a long time. We want to show those girls that there is a pathway for them in the game, whatever level they want to play at, whether it's club cricket, hardball, softball, casual cricket, league cricket within clubs, that they can then go on if they're, you know, if they if they've got talent, they can then go on and be supported um, to develop their talent to be the best they can be. Um, and ultimately, that that pathway gives them um, a clear sense of kind of direction all the way up to the England women's team and every step in between. So professional domestic cricket, playing in the hundred. And, and that's our ambition, really, is that the game offers girls those opportunities. And if you think about those viewing figures and the fact that cricket is so much more of women's cricket is so much more available and uh, uh, there is so much more opportunity to see it now. It's, I, I want those young girls to see that they've got a route in the, through the game and that they can, they can do whatever they want in the game, on and off the pitch, actually. They can coach, they can umpire, they can administrate, that the game is as welcoming to them as, as it is to, 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 to boys growing up in the game. I must say, Claire, it's so lovely to hear you saying all of that. It's one of the themes which Richard and I are trying to show in these discussions is how cricket is reinventing itself all the time, expanding in so many diff different areas, in its techniques, geographically, and of course, by welcoming, bringing women fully into the game, not just as spectators, but as players and as mm. people who run it like yourself or coaches. So exciting. Thank you very much for, pleasure, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, it's goodbye for me, Richard Heller, in a temporary hawk to rain-sodden South East London. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you.